Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 30, A Rebuke of the New Duke. Upon becoming the Duke of Burgundy, along with all the titles that came with it, Charles the Bold inherited the complex series of social revolts in the Low Countries that were either simmering or boiling over in places like Liège and Flanders. After burying his father, which he did with all the symbolic and royal pomp and ceremony that he could muster, Charles headed for Ghent. There, he expected to make a joyous entry that would celebrate his magnificence as emphatically as he had seen them do for his father years before. When he was sworn in as the new Count of Flanders, his oath was barely out of his mouth before he was literally surrounded by rioting and rebellious workers in the city. For the people of Ghent, and indeed for many of the people who lived in low country domains under Burgundian rule or influence, Charles's ascension meant that the relationship between the ruler and the ruled could begin anew. He could not simply appropriate the one which his father had established. These revolting workers in Ghent took the new Duke's visit as an opportunity to air grievances which they reckoned needed to be taken into consideration for the terms of this new relationship. This, however, was by no means the only issue that Charles had to deal with. Not even a year after his destruction of Dinant, the rebel factions in the bishopric of Liège had once more taken control of many towns in the territory, and their Burgundian puppet bishop Louis de Bourbon was forced into exile. Many of the people in Liège, invested in rebellion, were going to push a few of Charles's buttons and see if they couldn't take the opportunity of a change in ruler to unhook themselves from the talons of Burgundian domination. Philip the Good had spent almost half a century building upon the honour, prestige, reputation and influence that he had inherited from his forebears. His funeral, therefore, was suitably inclusive of and adorned with many symbolic gestures, ornaments and regalia that deliberately matched the pretensions to a throne that the Duke still held when he died in Bruges in 1467. Although he was dead, his entire state of sovereignty and right to legitimate rule was about to be passed on to Charles. It was therefore very much in Charles's interest to boost the magnificence of his dead father as much as he could before absorbing all his power. Charles inherited his father's eagerness to be a king before he inherited any of his titles, and it would serve his ambition in this regard to project a royal aura onto his father's funeral 
and to use the actual event as a means of displaying his own political, and so he hoped, eventual royal power. Charles even defied some of Philip's specific directions for what was to be done with his remains after he died. Philip had ordered that he must be buried in the Charter House in Dijon, next to his father and grandfather, in the tomb that Philip the Bold had constructed. This, in itself, would have served a few purposes. Firstly, a family tomb of Valois dukes sought to promote the idea of dynasty, implying consistency and duration of the legitimate rulers of the Burgundian realm. This is pretty much what all royal families did, and it helped to create an epicenter of gravitas around their deceased forebears and rulers. Richard Vaughan compares the crypt at Dijon with St. Denis in Paris, where the French monarchs were traditionally buried. Lastly, because Philip the Bold and John the Fearless were entombed in Dijon, Philip the Good had seen to it that there were a lot of churches and chapels around, many of which spent a lot of time in dedicated and prepaid prayer to the Valois rulers' souls. Philip definitely wanted in on that post-mortem heaven action. Charles, however, had different plans, at least for now. We have seen how troublesome Flanders could be for any of its counts. At the end of his life, Philip had listed one of his main achievements as being the pacification of rebellion and revolt in Liège and Flanders. Despite this bold claim, however, extreme elements in those societies still remained, and you just know that Flemish revolts are not yet a thing of the past. Upon inheriting the title of Count of Flanders, Charles wanted to make a statement about the nature of his upcoming reign, and decided to use the occasion of Philip's funeral to show the people of Flanders that he meant business. As such, Charles decided that Philip would be buried in Bruges, not Dijon, to once again remind the Flemish of the resplendent power incumbent in Burgundian rule. Historian Edward Tabry compares the funeral of Philip the Good to that of his grandfather, Philip the Bold. As you may remember, when the first Philip died in Hulle, a multiple weeks-long funeral procession began, in which he was varyingly joined by his sons, his courtiers, and household staff during certain periods. But by the time Philip's body arrived in Dijon, there was basically nobody of importance left to see it actually interred in the ground, his sons having already departed and his household having been released from their personal duty to him. As dignified as this procession was, it was a much more meagre affair than his grandsons would be. Quote, Although the two funerals shared some fundamental similarities, the funeral of Philip the Good was far more elaborate and formalized, as well as much more expressive of ducal dignity and several other significant implications, which from all appearances were totally absent from the coup funebre of his grandfather in 1404. End quote. The funeral took place about a week after his death, with the services kicking off on Sunday the 21st of June 1467. Despite burying him in the wrong place, Charles truly did justice to his father's love of splendour in the other arrangements he made. Philip's household members were decked out in expensive mourning garb, 
and everybody involved wore clothes that deliberately reflected the hierarchy of each person's nobility and importance. The entire St. Donatian's Church in Bruges was similarly bedecked in a wide range of ridiculously expensive black fabrics and adorned with hundreds and possibly a couple of thousand banners showing the ducal arms. So many candles were jammed into the church that the stained glass windows had to be pierced in order to let the stiflingly hot air out of the building. It is thought that around 20,000 people watched the funeral procession as it wound its way from the Ducal Palace through Bruges and to the church. Between the procession and the crowd stood men holding torches, supplied by both the city, the guilds, and by Charles himself. The procession began with the magistracy and the guilds of Bruges and the Frank of Bruges, followed by the officers of the Duke, and then the members of Philip's personal household. This was a very large contingent, ranging from the Duke's surgeons and advisors to the people who were responsible for cutting his meat. There was a grand ceremony where all these people had their names called out, and then the chamberlains and heralds of Philip's awesome boys club, the Order of the Golden Fleece, followed by four prince bishops, all dressed in pontifical garb. These were then followed by a bunch of high military officers, an element common in French royal funerals given that, unlike the personal household staff of the Duke, these people would not be replaced by the incoming Charles, and they symbolized the unbroken transfer of power from father to son. When, finally, it was time for Philip's body to be taken through, it was carried in a massive lead coffin draped in all the necessary Christian insignia and gold cloth and regalia carried by 20 specifically chosen men. This was accompanied by four great noblemen of Burgundy who held a grand canopy above the coffin, another symbol often associated with French royal funerals. Then, walking alone behind them, was one of Philip's chief administrators who held Philip's sword sheathed and pointed to the ground in front of him. The sword was also an entrenched symbol for the possession of power and had long been practiced in royal funerals and other ceremonies. To quote Tabri again, whose work we have relied very heavily on for this section, quote, The sword was perceived as an impersonal objectification of princely power, which served to demonstrate the continuity of rulership and the ongoing vitality of the king until the moment he was placed in the grave. End quote. In the wake of his father's body and the sword that contained his future superpowers came Charles, alongside five other chief mourners, all representing the dead Duke's kin. Once inside the church, the assembled and privileged crowd spent four hours in prayer and solemnity, probably wishing they could cover it in just a few minutes like we have, before leaving the body to be guarded by a vigil of the Duke's heralds and his superpower sword. The next day, they came back again for a few masses before watching the coffin be lowered into the tomb. Officers and sergeants of Philip, their jobs now ended, came and threw their batons and staves in with the coffin. Finally, once this was done, the man who had carried Philip's sword in the procession picked it up, pointed it at the ceiling, and presented it to Charles. The transfer of power was complete, and to anyone watching, it was done in a way that could easily be described as royal. The Duke of Burgundy is dead. 
Long live the Duke of Burgundy. Duke Charles may now have been charged up by having this awesome second hand but fancy sword, but as the ruler of a bunch of different areas, he was now required to go and take part in a bunch of ceremonies throughout his lands in order to confirm his reign in each and every one of them. So having made this display of his promotion to the people of Bruges, he decided to follow things up by making a joyous entry into that most difficult of all Flemish cities, Ghent. He did this just one week after the funeral of his father, on Sunday, June the 28th. This would be a more solemn affair than the one he had experienced as a child, since everybody was still supposed to be mourning for Philip, but given the importance of these occasions, and that it was the first of his new reign, Charles would have been anxious to ensure that the whole affair went smoothly. According to Philip de Comines, quote, He chose to make his entry into Ghent before any town besides, out of an opinion of his being better loved there than in any other town in his whole dominions, and that according to their example, all the rest would behave themselves towards him. End quote. Let's remind ourselves of what the joyous entry meant and why it was important for both the new ruler and the magistracy of Ghent. The entries had become the manner by which the relationship between the ruler and the ruled was agreed upon in much of the Low Countries. If it did not happen, or if it was interrupted or disturbed, it threatened the popular sense of legitimacy in that relationship. The two most recent joyous entries into Ghent had been in 1453 and again in 1458. The former had come following the failed Ghent Wars, after which Philip had gone excessively hard with invocative, poignant symbolism that subjected Ghent to a clear understanding that he was their absolute ruler. The city's aldermen and the deans of the guilds, if you remember, had been forced to appear before him with shaved heads and bare feet, presenting him with the banners of the guild's militias. Philip had specifically chosen dates for his entries that would serve the stated aim of the event, such as in 1458, when he deliberately held it on St. George's Day, the patron saint of the city's social elite crossbowmen. Being himself a member of the city's crossbowmen, he had utilized symbolism to do with St. George to further entrench the sense of connection between himself and this elite section of Ghent society, in his subjects' minds at least. Philip had understood the power of symbols in establishing a stable relationship between ruler and the ruled. Charles, perhaps because he had first experienced his own mini-joyous entry as a kid, can be understood as having felt more entitlement to them, and less a need to use them to establish and legitimise the terms of his sovereignty. The date Charles chose to make his ASAP joyous entry into Ghent was the 28th of June 1467. The problem was that this conflicted with one of the most important civic festivals in that town's calendar, the procession of the relics of St. Levin, an Irish missionary who had been killed in nearby Haltham in the 7th century. Every year, over two days, the relics of St. Levin would be carried from Ghent to Haltham and back again, followed by an escort of thousands of reveling pilgrims. Displaying both a lack of connectivity with his irritable new subjects, as well as a rash arrogance that was true to his nickname, Charles the Rash was seemingly not aware, or did not care, how much Gentinas loved this event, 
and he chose to enter the town right in the middle of when it was scheduled for. The aldermen of Ghent city government had their own specific interests in what this joyous entry would mean. It was Charles's first as the ruler, and presented an opportunity to renew the relationship between the city and the count, with new terms to be agreed upon. Many of Ghent's privileges had been stripped from them after 1453, such as control over an area outside the city and the right of the guilds to hang on to their own banners and assemble their militia. Still, after nearly 15 years, it was of high priority for the local power brokers that the town's independence be restored. The aldermen likely had this in mind when, frankly showing terrible judgment, they neither informed Charles or his people of the clash in programming, nor showed proper respect to the social importance of the St. Leifen procession. An ordinance was handed down that ordered the pilgrims to reschedule the procession so as not to interfere with the joyous entry. They were told to leave for Houghton a day early, on the Friday instead of Saturday, and to return as usual on the Monday. As historian Peter Arnada very eloquently put it, quote, The usurpation of urban space at the expense of Ghent's most cherished procession upset the fragile political and cultural order among social classes within the city. End quote. Upsetting the fragile political and cultural order among social classes within the city is one of the most wonderful descriptions of something which we are all intimately familiar with, and also which, let's face it, we all knew was going to happen again. That's right, the Flemish are revolting, version 50,000.0. Also, as far as we can tell, Charles here will set a record for the shortest reign as Flemish count before having to deal with an uprising. A day. Here we go. Chastelaine, who saw the events unfold, described the rabble that had begun returning to Ghent from Houghton on Monday the 29th, the day after the joyous entry. He said they were, quote, a group of lowlife and young brats carrying the saint, shouting and crying, singing and dancing, making a hundred thousand insults, all drunk, end quote. So on the day after his taking charge, Charles was faced with a group of Flemish commoners carrying the bones of a long-dead Irishman and who, instead of being sated, tired, but content from their annual two-day religious festival, had instead been on a three-day bender which started with them being angry and having to leave a day early just so the Count could use their city to try and make himself look splendid. They had other reasons to be angry, however, as many workers in Ghent at the time were feeling the pinch and were disenchanted with the aldermen in government, who they saw as exploitative and corrupt. This group then found itself assembling on the Gordon Markt and then attracted more people to join them. On this market square, there stood a tax booth by which citizens were expected to pay a much-hated tax on the most basic necessities such as food, drink and fuel, a tax called the Kilot. Fired up by their anger towards the aldermen and using the reliquary which was the case in which St. Lefen's relics were carried, members in the group smashed the tax booth to pieces. As is the way with mobs of emotional people, their cries of righteousness justified and escalated their actions and their confidence in taking them, and they held the cloth that had adorned the reliquary aloft above their heads. 
One contemporary diarist suggests that this was in lieu of the forbidden guild banners that they had not been allowed to hold since 1453. Under the sway of this cloth, the mob grew and moved, making its way to the Freidachmarkt, where just the day before, Charles had first been presented to, and celebrated by many of the people now there, as their new ruler. Once settled there, the crowd in the Freidachmarkt continued to grow and grow, and all those currents of angst and rebelliousness that streamed constantly under the surface of urban Flemish society began to seep to the forefront of everybody's mind. Accounts differ about exactly how the ducal response happened. Chastelaine says that Charles wanted to immediately go and confront the rioters, but was talked down by one of his Flemish advisers, Lodewijk Groothuser, who told him that, quote, your life and ours rest upon your careful behavior, end quote. Charles agreed that Lodewijk could go in his stead. Other Flemish accounts say that it was Charles who went first himself. Either way, whoever spoke first, both men engaged with the crowd gathered on the Freidachmarkt. Kruthuse apparently appealed to the sensibilities and respect of the Gentenars and told them that they should have esteem for the occasion that marked a new lord coming to power. The rabble insisted that they were angry at the aldermen in the city government who exploited them for taxes and did not care about what was important to them, such as the St. Liefen procession. When Huthuser told them that, all that being fair, a joyous entry by a new duke was no such time to air such grievances, they retorted that, in fact, it was the perfect time. Charles had taken an oath only a day before to uphold his obligations to their well-being, and in their eyes, their well-being was being forsaken by the city government. If then Charles made his appearance after Hutuza had tried to mollify the crowd, then we can see how the actions the new duke took would have been exasperating for Hutuza to behold. When Charles appeared, he was dressed entirely in black, marking his period of mourning, but also reminiscent of his father who had consistently worn only black since John the Fearless's murder in 1419. He was accompanied by some of his knights as well as archers, and his approach was nowhere near as amenable as Huthuser had attempted. He shoved his way through the crowd, angrily demanding to know who the rebels were and why they were doing what they were doing. Reportedly, he hit someone, whether by accident in his anger or purely just in anger. Naturally, this would have riled up the crowd even more, sending a jolt of unease and anxiety through the Duke's entourage. Huthuser himself was a Fleming, and he knew the precariousness in which they now found themselves. He admonished Charles, telling him that, quote, Our lives and yours hang on a thread. End quote. Charles was escorted to a safe place nearby, an inn called the Toehouse. He calmed down and, according to Chastelaine, once more spoke to the crowd, in his best Flemish, to try and assuage their anger. Charles's more placid demeanour, however, would not last, because a local commoner called Hosta Brunel managed to spider man up a building and onto the balcony from which Charles was talking to the crowd and steal the crowd's attention. He clearly laid out the demands of the people of Ghent. These were that the Kelot tax would be abolished, that Ghent have the rights which had been stricken from her in 1453 restored, 
including the reopening of three city gates, which have been shut since then, and also that the permission for the guilds to carry their own banners would be given back to them once more. On top of this, he demanded that the aldermen of the city be punished for their greed and corruption, which had inspired this revolt. Brunel was clearly a big hit, because Charles could have no further influence on the crowd's opinion, and he was forced to retire in a foul mood once again. Brunel's action is an underrated moment of daring courage. This was a time when the superiority of some over others was not just accepted, but absorbed into the fabric of how every human saw themselves. Chastelaine's horror in describing this makes it clear how outrageously bold Brunel's manner was. Quote, O glorious majesty of God, think of such an outrageous and intolerable piece of villainy being committed before the eyes of a prince. For a low man to venture to come and stand side by side with such a gentleman as our seigneur, and to proffer words inimical to his authority, words the poorest noble in the world would hardly have endured. And yet it was necessary for this noble prince to endure and to tolerate it for the moment, and needful that he should let pass as a pleasantry what was enough to kill him with grief. End quote. And if you caught the word inimical there and wondered what it means, it means tending to obstruct or to cause harm. Not a word that I've ever used much in my life, but I'm definitely going to from this point on. Emboldened by Brunel's audacity, the protests continued on, some of those involved even trying to break into the city's belfry so as to once again summon the guilds with the tolling of its bells. Although they did not succeed, they did get their hands on some bells, and these, as well as the words spreading like city fire through Ghent, saw more and more militia members arming themselves and heading to the square to join in this ancient Flemish tradition. It went on into the night and through to the next day. Holed up in talks with the aldermen of the city, Charles was finally forced to concede to some, if not all, of the demands. They convinced him that returning the banners to the guilds would suffice, and the workers would leave happy. Charles, probably quite desperate by this stage, agreed. But Philip de Comines tells us that he had little choice. Quote, to avoid the danger he was in, he granted their demands, gave them whatever privileges they asked, and the word was no sooner spoken, but the banners were set up and displayed in the marketplace, being there before and ready for the purpose, from whence one may probably conjecture that they would have done the same thing if the Duke had denied their requests. End quote. Charles was in a sticky situation indeed. He had entered again with the hope of setting the tone for his rule, no doubt with memories of the ceremony he had experienced as a child bouncing around in his head, but instead of being treated like the second coming of Jesus, he was now helplessly watching his new authority be immediately challenged and eroded by, and you'll never believe this, a bunch of common workers. Welcome to the big time, Charlie boy. Gamines goes on to say, however, that Charles had got one thing right, quote, his opinion was right, that if he made his first entry into Ghent, all the rest of the towns would follow its example, for several of them mutinied as they had done, killed their officers, and committed many other exorbitances, end quote. Well, that plan worked. Mega conscious of wanting to calm the situation down, as well as of the fact that his daughter and only heir, Mary, was 
also in the city, vulnerable to anybody who might be so bold as to grab her and try to use her as a bargaining chip, as well as the fact that he had with him an abundance of treasure from Bruges, which his father had left to him, Charles was keen to try and sort things out as soon as possible. He also must have been keen to avoid a general Flemish uprising, no doubt probably a bit shaken by how quickly these things can come about. So Charles peaced out and left Kent on the 1st of July. This joyous entry had been a complete disaster of a public relations event. The situation in Ghent remained unstable throughout the month of July, 1467. Duke Charles fired the city's hated ducal bailiff and hired a new man, Lloyd Desconnet, to help to manage the tensions. On the 28th of July, Charles issued documents which forgave the citizens of Ghent for their rebellion. He reopened the three gates which had been closed as part of the Treaty of Cavere 14 years earlier and allowed the guilds to use their banners again. But ever conscious of his image as the all-powerful conquering lord, Charles insisted that a party of Ghent's elite travel to his court in Brussels, kneel before him, bareheaded of course, and beg his forgiveness. Historian P.J. Arnada suggests that, as embarrassing as taking part in this ceremony might have been, quote, the Brussels humiliation was a distasteful but highly effective means to restore Ghent's civic autonomy, end quote. Indeed, they had been trying to restore the city's rights ever since they had been taken away after the earlier revolt against Philip, and now this mob of drunken, angry pilgrims had achieved that which they had failed to do for so long. It might have been a little embarrassing to appear so subservient before the court, but, you know, a win's a win. Charles had certainly set about establishing the relationship between himself and his subjects, but it had not happened in the extravagant and honourable way that his father had experienced, nor in the way that he had likely imagined and expected for himself. Ghent was not the only troublesome place that the new duke had to think about on his coming to power. In both St. Omer in Artois and in Antwerp, there were matters of social unrest. Around the time that he made his entry into Malines, that persistent nagging nemesis of Antwerp on just the 3rd of July, people from Malines captured, stole and sank three boats carrying grain, some of which was destined to supply Charles's court at Brussels. These commoners then went and ransacked the house of the Duke's representative in Malines. They armed themselves, gathered in the town square, and dismissed the ruling magistracy, electing new aldermen. They too were throwing down a challenge to the authority of the new Duke at the beginning of his reign. Even though the rebels here succeeded in procuring the town keys and controlling the gate, by the end of August, Charles's forces had managed to retake Malines. It took until October for the unrest there to be fully pacified, but by the end of it, Charles had forced them to fully submit, subjecting them to similar humiliation as what Ghent had been force-fed in 1453. Charles was not unintelligent, and would have been schooled in the history of his families dealing with their rebellious subjects. However, there was nothing that could truly prepare him for actually sitting in the hot seat and learning directly what extreme volatility one could expect in the pursuit of ruling over unruly lowlanders. We are familiar with Charles's manner of responding to insults on his honour. Just take a look at what happened in Dinant last episode, as well as his capacity for holding on to grudges 
against those who had slighted him. Many in Ghent, St. Omer, Antwerp, and Malines would have been well aware of this too. After these initial opportunistic but failed uprisings that welcomed his reign, they would have been rather worried about what Duke Charles might have in store for them after he had regrouped. Maybe they would become the next Dinant. But before Charles had the chance to bring down the hammer of violent retribution upon cities like Ghent, events in Liège were going to go out of control, requiring his immediate attention. Still smarting from his treatment at the hands of his people in Flanders, Charles would have to make do with crushing his enemies in Liège for a second time instead. Speaking of things that require attention, or not, here's an ad. See you on the other side. We left Liège in the previous episode with Charles's complete destruction of the town of Dinant. For the people in the city of Liège, amongst whom tendencies of social revolt had existed for decades, Charles's brutality further deepened the divide between those who supported the Burgundians, those who were scared enough to tolerate Burgundian rule, and those who wanted to continue the rebellion and the fight for Liège's independence from the Burgundian juggernaut. One of these, from the latter category, was a man called Reis de Lintra, the Lord of Heres. Described in the book The Artillery of the Dukes of Burgundy as a, quote, extreme nationalist, end quote, he had assembled and already led the rebel forces in the Liège uprising the year before, prior to the pitiful peace of Saint-Trond, which Liège was forced to sign in 1466. Some of the rebels in Liège marched under the name the Companions of the Green Tents, an odd sequence of words that originated in Ghent in the 1450s as a name for rebels against Philip the Good, and which soon became a label that anyone fighting against Burgundian forces may apply to themselves or have applied to them. The Companions merged with other rebel forces in Liège and became a pretty effective guerrilla fighting unit. They gained a reputation for using Hanchoner, hand cannons, which sound awesome and pretty much were. They were exactly what they say on the box, a cannon on a stick which you held with your hand. The gunner would fire it by applying matches or a red-hot iron to a wick and shoot armor-piecing projectiles at whoever stood in its path. It's kind of like a weaponized Roman candle. If you've ever experienced New Year's Eve in the Netherlands, then you would be able to imagine the kind of panic a Hanchona could sow when used in battle. If you haven't, it is basically a war zone of 14-year-olds, or 40-year-olds who still think they're 14, shooting fireworks at your ankles, blowing up letterboxes and bus stops, or sneakily placing them on the ground to go off under your bike tires as you ride past terrified. The rebel guerrilla forces soon became known as coulive freineurs, a fancy French word meaning handgunners. Although not all coulive freineurs carried the hand cannon, it certainly became attached to their reputation. Their typical mode of operation has been described as them jumping in and out of hedges, shooting off their hand cannons, and slipping back into obscurity. Along with their local knowledge and not being recognized by any uniform, they became a thorn in the side of the Burgundian authorities. 
So, yeah, the point of this is that grown dudes participating in urban guerrilla warfare shooting fireworks at each other's faces, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Or that it still happens every year. After Dunant was sacked in August 1466, many of the radical leaders like Ray Stalindra fled to escape from the most likely alternative, which was to be captured, tortured, and executed. The sacking was followed by even harsher peace terms being foisted upon the city of Liège in September 1466, known as the Treaty of Olay. This included a huge indemnity cost to be paid by Liège to the Duke in installments, for each of which a set of 50 hostages was to be provided as collateral. Even worse, from this point on, the Duke of Burgundy was appointed the hereditary guardian of Liège, bypassing the ecclesiastical sovereignty of the bishop altogether. Despite the weight of these Burgundian conditions, however, and still yet buoyed by their fierce hatred of Burgundians altogether and their desire for independence, Reis de Lintra and his rebel allies did not abide by the terms of the piteous peace part two, but rather continued sowing discontent and notions of rebellion in Liège. As Vaughan put it, quote, Instead of busying themselves with the publication and implementation of this peace settlement, which included a reconciliation between the city of Liège and the bishop, Louis de Bourbon, the more radical leaders in Liège raised objections, made delays, and set about prosecuting and even executing those who had been responsible for negotiating the peace settlement with the Duke of Burgundy, while Reis de Lintra dressed his partisans in red tunics with the words... Long live Liège, embroidered on the sleeves. The rift between bishop and city widened. End quote. During all this turmoil, Louis de Bourbon, the hated prince bishop and puppet-slash-nephew of Philip the Good, made his by-now signature move and fled. He made his way to the town of Huy, called in his inner circle to join him and set up base there to try to figure out how to proceed. You may remember that the rebellious Liegeois had been courting and had been courted by the French king, Louis XI, for some time. One of his chief aims was the destabilization of the Burgundian state. During the initial outbreak of hostilities in 1465, he had given the rebels a lot of emotional support, but also promised that he would send troops to help them out any day now. As we saw with the destruction of Dinant, these troops never arrived. A year later, and with the rebellion once more gaining traction, Louis seems to have changed tack, the evidence suggesting that he was trying to engender a peace agreement between the rebels and their hated bishop, Louis de Bourbon, rather than promoting constant warfare against the Burgundians. This may have been confusing for the rebels, some of whom surely had fortified their courage with insistence that they still had the support of one of Europe's greatest monarchs. To compound any of this confusion, and if Chastelaine is to be believed, they did have the explicit support of one of Louis's underlings, Philip, the Count of Nevers, he who had had the tenuous claim on Brabant, who was a cousin of Charles the Bold, and whom Louis XI had put in charge of those Somme and Peron towns when he had bought them back off Philip. Philip of Nevers was shooting off daring letters at the time, taking aim at the honour of Charles's court, as well as targeting the righteous sensitivities of the rebels, basically telling them to keep rebelling. 
And this was the state of this complex situation when Philip the Good had died and Charles had taken over, when Ghent teetered on the brink of yet another violent uprising the day after his joyous entry there, Charles was being confronted with the prospect of revolt on several fronts, which very easily could have spread beyond the bounds of Flanders and Liège. So by July 1467, Charles had appropriated control of law and order in Liège from Louis de Bourbon and was making plans to once more march against the rebels. Ray Stalintra ordered and organized the construction of a huge cannon, which they creatively called Liegeois, after themselves. As soon as it was ready, he set about demonstrating its effectiveness by shooting it off in front of churches around the town. But one day after this display, the cannon blew itself up. It's quite a lot of symbolism in that, you'll see. By the middle of August, the rebels had taken over the edge again and set about taking revenge on those who they blamed for the situation they found themselves in. They tortured and decapitated a former mayor of the former town of Dinant, a guy called Jean Carpentier. A few Burgundian officials and sympathizers were harassed and imprisoned, including an emissary of the Duke, Jan Stoop. On the 18th of August, rebels left the territory of Liège and entered Limburg, attacking one of Charles's towns there, Bernau. The Limburgers retaliated, of course, and it set into motion a series of tits-for-tats, which eventually turned into open warfare by September. On the 16th of September, the companions of the Green Tents pulled off a surprise attack on the town of Huy. The aim of this attack was to try and grab Louis de Bourbon and bring the bishop back to the city of Liège, either so they could put an official veneer of respectability on their revolutionary government there, or perhaps so they could use him as collateral for any negotiations between themselves and the Burgundians, or maybe they just wanted to throw him in the river. Huy's defences led by the Lord of Aremberg, withstood the attack for little more than a day, but this was enough time to give Louis de Bourbon a chance to escape once more after begging help of one of Charles's men. By the evening of the 17th, the Liegeois rebels were in control of Huy. Charles was very unhappy when a few days later, who should appear at his court in Brussels but Louis de Bourbon. In his History of Charles the Bold, John Foster Kirk says of the request for help that Louis makes of this Burgundian officer, quote, The Burgundian officer, supposing that the main object of his mission was to protect the person of the bishop, did not think himself at liberty to refuse this request. But on their arrival at Brussels, he met with a reception from his sovereign which undeceived him on this point. Your duty, said the Duke, was to regard my honour not to listen to the prayers of a cowardly priest. As for the bishop, Charles treated him with unconcealed disdain. End quote. For Charles, it was time to act. Again, he raised his banners and troops from across his domains and even beyond its borders began to mobilize and prepare to march on Liège. This included vassals from Holland, Flanders and Brabant, but also from allies like the Duke of Cleves, who rocked up with a pretty decent force. Many of them did not make it by the time the campaign began, and Ghent, many of whose citizens would have been urging on the Liegeois rebels, refused to respond to the command for their militia. Meanwhile, those rebels were continuing to prepare for the inevitable showdown. Ray Stalintra was in the city of Liège, while other of his officers, 
including his wife, Pentecost of Van Hrevenbroek, remained in Hui, which they had managed to hold for a month by now. The rebels would have been acutely aware that Charles was building his forces and their preparations were designed to meet the Burgundian army on a battlefield. It was also clear that when Charles entered Liège, he would move to take Centron first, just as he had done on the previous time he had marched into the territory. On the 22nd of October, the inhabitants of Wy were awoken to the cries of violence. A small force from the Burgundian army, which included some locals who had fled when it fell to the rebels, had split away from the main group in order to try to surprise the town. Hui's defense was apparently buoyed by the presence of Reis de Lintra's wife, Pentecost van Hrevenbroek, who helped organize the troops, had the city bells rung and alerted everybody to the attack. The attack failed when the armies got stuck at the walls of Hui. Apparently nobody thought to bring a ladder, which seems like a pretty big oversight. So after then being smashed by archers and Hanachona, the hand cannons of the rebels, they fled back to where they come from. So the little expedition to retake Hui did not work. This would have given a big boost of confidence to the rebels who had taken such delight in taking Hui in the first place and forcing Louis de Bourbon to flee. They'd even taken his official bishop's gear and stuck it on display in Liège for everyone to come and have a look. The day after the spirit's defense of Hui, Race de Lintra and the citizen army of Liège got ready to march out and planned to do so one day later to face Charles's forces in battle. The next day, because these are the low countries we are talking about, it rained, causing much delay. It was not until the 23rd of October, 1467, that they left Liège and started walking the 35 or so kilometres towards Centron, where Charles, when he did attack, would surely head to first. A really strange little tidbit of history is that when the Burgundians arrived in Centron late on the 27th, they had been aware that the rebel army had left Liège and were confused that they were not already there too. In fact, the Liège army only got to Prostum, a town really close to Centron, on the 28th, meaning it had taken around five days for them to walk what, according to Google Maps, can be done in six hours and 50 minutes of walking, if you take the N3, of course. Being just old enough to remember driving around Belgium, relying on roadmaps and erroneous street signs, I'm actually surprised they got there at all. But anyway, to this day... Nobody has any clue what they did in that time or why it took them so long. So there you go. That's weird. The Burgundians therefore had plenty of time to prepare for the battle. The location where it would be held was a place filled with ditches and trees, hedgerows and, get this, morass. More morass. Sorry, I just have to mention morass or sphagnum again. And this all meant that it was going to be difficult for either side to get any cavalry into the action. Charles carefully made arrangements and in the morning made a point of being seen moving around his army, delivering written orders to all of his troops. Charles was keen to show that he was a skilled commander as well as being personally brave on the battlefield. Both sides had their fair share of artillery and so when the battle commenced, that's what they started with. In fairly standard late Middle Ages style, they were both pretty awful at using it, 
largely sending their bombardments over the heads of one another's troops, crashing into trees and sending their branches tumbling into the sphagnum. Charles ordered his archers to advance through the forest around Brusum to take on the more defensively positioned rebels. Hand-to-hand combat ensued as the Burgundian forces pushed further and further and into the town of Brusum itself. Charles sent a mounted force down the road between Brusum and Centron, which was led by his bastard half-brother Badouin, with the aim of trying to help out the archers, but they were not able to make it due to the terrain. All that sphagnum. The rebels held strong, and after the archers ran out of ammunition, they pushed forward, sending the Burgundian attack into disarray. Momentarily, it looked like they were going to completely collapse. To quote John Foster Kirk again, quote, But the excellence of the Duke's arrangements was now made apparent. The archers of the battle or main corps, unsheathing the long two-handed swords which they used in close combat, raised a loud cheer and assailed the advancing pikemen with such impetuosity that in a moment these half-trained soldiers were discomfited and scattered. The panic soon spread through the whole army. End quote. Some rebels stood and fought, but others, such as the leader, Reis de Lintra, fled as soon as things turned south. The result was a bloodbath for the rebels, with anywhere between two to 9,000 of them being killed. As Vaughan writes, quote, Nightfall saved the lives of many of the Ligeois, though their tents and pavilions, their carts and baggage, and their artillery all fell into the hands of the Burgundians. Many of their leaders remained dead on the field of battle. End quote. The day and the result of the Battle of Brussum belonged to Charles, and once again, Liège found itself facing the imminent wrath of the Duke of Burgundy. The next few days saw a steady push from the Burgundian army to go and take Liège city itself. Race de Lintra's home territory of Heres was taken, with both his castle and the town destroyed. So too was the town of Velen. The courage of the rebels, largely holding up within the walls of Liège itself, was beginning to wane. The inevitable death train of Burgundian soldiers was just moving ever closer towards them. Poetically, on the 10th of November, they found themselves in Otte, where Charles could reflect on his grandfather's retributive legacy and brilliant victory there in 1408. A day later, they were outside Liège's walls. Those who had managed to flee from Brusten, including Race de Lintra, had advocated hard within the city that they should make a stand here against Charles. There were many others, though, according to Philip de Comines, quote, who saw and considered the inevitable ruin and desolation of the whole country if they persisted in that resolution. Would needs have peace on any terms? End quote. Can you really blame them? You can imagine that these people would have still had fresh memories in their mind of yeah, the complete destruction of Dinant only one year earlier and would have been prepared to do almost anything to avoid the same fate happening to them and their families. Philip de Comines' writing gives us a sense of what the confusion must have been like inside the walls of the city. Quote, The whole city, indeed, was a scene of tumult. Mutual recriminations distracted the councils of the leaders, the people no longer obeyed the orders or listened to the persuasions of those whose audacity was ever conspicuous, save in the hour of danger. End quote. Many of the town citizens escaped throughout the night, hiding themselves in the forests outside of Liège, 
no doubt freezing in the cold and wet November night air. Although the city was in a precarious position, it still wasn't possible for Charles to simply waltz in and take it. A delegation was sent to negotiate the town's surrender, led by a man named Guy of Humbercourt. Philip de Camines was himself a part of this group and provides great detail in his narrative about the negotiations. Humbercourt had been active in the administration of the Edge for the past year, so he was familiar with the town and the situation. Camines writes about how the negotiations went down to the wire, with Humbercourt being aware that Race de Lintra and other rebels were openly advocating against any peace and being worried about the chance of his delegation being attacked. They sent two people within the walls to negotiate and heard the bells of Liège pealing soon after, calling the town's citizens together to discuss what to do. Cries and shouts could be heard within the walls, and when the two did not return, another four people were sent into Liège to find out what happened and continue imploring them to surrender. As they entered the town, quote, Some of the people threatened and gave them very ill language. Others were willing to hear what they had to say and returned to the palace. And the bell ringing again, we were extremely pleased and the noise at the gate began to decrease. In short, they were then a long time in the palace and their conference lasted till two in the morning, in which assembly it was agreed that their promise should be kept and that in the morning one of the gates should be delivered up to the Lord of Humbercourt. Upon which resolution the Lord raced to Lintra and his party abandoned the town. End quote. So there goes Race to Lintra. What was it that Kamine said? Those whose audacity was ever conspicuous save in the hour of danger. On the 12th of November, Liège surrendered once again. 340 citizens met the Duke with bare heads and bare feet outside the walls, begging his forgiveness and offering him the keys to the town. Charles found himself once again in the position of being conqueror. He ordered the gates of Liège to be taken off their hinges, that the walls be dismantled. He made a triumphal entrance into the city, surrounded by his nobles and his armies, riding through the town, being watched by the city's population of citizens and priests. Charles once again made sure that his soldiers were on their best behaviour in the town, just like he had done in Denath before sacking it. He ordered that anyone who plundered would be hanged. In the end, Liège would be spared the systematic sacking which Denant had suffered, and the citizens mostly spared their lives, except for a few ringleaders who Charles had executed. The rest of the terms of the surrender were extremely harsh. To quote John Foster Kirk once more, quote, On the morning of the 26th, the bell was rung that had so often called the burghers together in their usual place of assembly to exercise the rights of freemen. On an elevated platform sat the duke in state, the bishop beside him, the principal nobles standing round. Charles's secretary read the judgments and sentence of his master, word by word, in a loud and distinct tone. The customs of Liège, that is to say its constitution and its laws, were by this instrument pronounced bad and were forever abrogated. All the franchises of the people, their charters and their privileges of every kind were declared to be forfeited and annulled. The existing tribunals were dissolved, the municipal government was done away with, the guilds were disincorporated. The walls and fortifications were to be demolished, 
so that Liège might henceforth be open, like a village or a country town, on every side. End quote. Charles essentially scrapped the entire system of justice and constitution of Liège, replacing it with the law of reason. And who was going to administer this law of reason? Well, that would be 14 officers who would be selected by the bishop, but who would be taking an oath of loyalty to Duke Charles himself. For a place which had had a somewhat democratic tradition, relatively speaking, and having had power-sharing mechanisms between the bishop, the clergy, the towns, and the patricians that stretched back at least a hundred and even more years, and who had violently fought against the many attempted incursions on this sense of sovereignty, you can imagine how much of a slap in the face this must have been. All of their rights, gone. At this moment, however, the people of Liège were in no position to negotiate. Charles departed the city with all of the city's arms and artillery, He even had the symbol of the town and its liberties, a large column standing in a fountain topped by a sculpture of the three graces carrying a pine cone with a cross sticking out of it, weird, dismantled. It was called the Perron. He had it packed up and carted off to Bruges. He left Guy of Humbercourt behind to act as his lieutenant general. Charles must have hoped that by this stage, the rebellious Ligeois had got the idea they would accept the inevitability, as he would have seen it, of his rule. The rebels in Liège, on the other hand, had been defeated, but not broken. It would be less than a year before the fire of revolt was stoked once more, and Charles? Well, Charles would reach the limits of his patience with them. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of History of the Netherlands. The recent love we have been getting from you, our favourite people, has been immense lately and we really appreciate the words of support and interaction that's been coming our way. As we move ever so slowly forward in our narrative of Dutch history, things are getting both easier and more difficult as different opportunities and challenges arise in how we approach the, the research and the writing. Naturally, The closer we are to an event, the more sources tend to exist, which is great for getting a wider expanse of perspectives on issues and events and characters. But this also means that we become faced with exponentially more information that we need to ingest and chew up and, like the miracle of Amsterdam bread, regurgitate back in our own spiritual way. Considering the initial intention when we started this project, was to do 50 episodes to cover the entirety of Dutch history, and we're currently 60% through that, moving at the pace of now one year an episode, it looks like, and have spent longer in the 15th century than we did in what seemed like the eternal 14th century, you can bank on the fact that we will be doing this for quite a while longer yet. That being said, we are extremely conscious of finding new and creative ways to tackle the increasing complexity of Dutch history, and to achieve our aim of giving Dutch history as much coverage in English as we can. Soon, we will be getting into, yeah, not too minor events, such as a little thing called the Protestant Reformation, or the 80 Years' War. Have you ever heard of colonialism, Julian? Not. As we go along, we are having to be more and more choosy about what to include and what to leave out of the main 
chronological narrative. But even though there are many stories which we cut because they might not necessarily fit into that narrative, there are so many which we still think are just really cool. At the same time, we've also been trying to think of ways that we can pay better homage to the members of the Golden Patreon Pledge and how we can provide more benefit to those of you who choose to become part of our completely not exclusive order. As such, we think that producing little bonus episodes with short stories could be a good way of doing that. So if you do want to get sidetracked down rambling alleyways of Dutch history, and if you are a member of the Order of the Golden Patreon Pledge, then we are hoping to get yeah, some random little episodes to you soon. We make no promises about when exactly these will come out, but we wanted you to know that it is in the pipeline and that once we have more details, you'll be the first to know. Doing this is not going to affect our main episodes, just like this, which will still come out at the regularly irregular basis that we have consistently managed for a few years. So, having said all that, and before we go, it is time to send out a huge thank you to the newest members of our dear and beloved order. Thank you to Oliver Koshi Koshmeter, Hans de Ritter, the Handsome Knight, and Saskia Mensink. Saskia, your last name doubles as a way that I describe my tiny Amsterdam bathroom, the men's sink. But really, cheers, Sassy, you're a champion. If you want to be like these wonderful people and get these episodes early and without ads and then have access to our future little random episodes when we get to them, go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands and sign up for just a buck a show or more. The sky's the limit. More. <laughs> Finally, we have various COVID-19 restricted summer vacation plans coming up. What this means is a couple of things. You should also make COVID-19 restricted summer plans to Amsterdam and come on a boat tour with those damn boat guys. And if you want one of us as your captain, then you have to make sure you email the office first. The second thing it means is that the next episode will come out late. Unless by some freak miracle we get written really early, which, yeah, it's it's coming out late. <sighs> Unorganized tardiness. Bet you didn't know that was Australian. Dewey. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.